Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. Thanks for joining us again this week for another episode. We're winding down the year here, only a few more episodes remaining in 2017, the inaugural year of the podcast, and I've just been really thrilled and excited to see uh, how many people this has been able to reach and impact. Um, If you'd be so kind as to leave us a review on iTunes or to share this podcast uh, with your friends, uh, email a link to one of the episodes to someone who you know who might benefit from the contents and the knowledge that's being shared by the guests. That would mean a lot to me and help us to extend our reach and uh, grow the podcast to an even broader audience. I'm excited today to bring you an episode with Dr. Maz Moshiri, who many of you know. Uh, Dr. Moshiri is an expert on clear aligner treatment. And I think we're kind of at an interesting juncture here at our profession where certainly there are many orthodontists who are disquieted somewhat by uh, some of the approaches and business strategies of some of the companies making clear aligner treatment. And yet, on the other hand, we recognize that uh, a large part of our profession, our future treatment, is going to be headed into that realm. And so it behooves us to become experts uh, in providing this sort of treatment to our patients And Dr. Moshiri is going to help us today. He's going to tell us a little bit about uh, how he uh, came to be proficient with this sort of treatment and uh, give us lots of tips and tricks for how to apply this into our office. We're going to learn a little bit more about his practice and uh, about his family of orthodontists. And so I'm just really excited for you guys to hear this interview. Before we get into the interview here, let's spend a few minutes talking a bit more about our end-of-the-year planning. We've done a series of thoughts here about trying to get situated for 2018. We talked about setting monthly goals. We talked about fee setting. Today, I want to spend a minute to talk about our budget, our practice budget. Now, most of the time when we talk about our budget in our practice, we express that in percentages. We're talking about our overhead percentage. And of course, that percent means what percent of our total collections does any one expense or category of expenses represent. And it's important for us to understand how this breaks down so that we can understand our costs and how they fall into different categories. It's important for us to be able to benchmark our practice against industry standards. You know, we love to compare ourselves against our peers. And it also helps us to staff appropriately. So if we're looking, for instance, at staff costs, that might help us get the right number of team members into place to be able to meet the needs of our patients and the amount of orthodontics that we're trying to produce in a given year. So let's spend a minute looking at some of the target overhead percentages that have been put out there. I'm going to use kind of a combined average, since they're pretty close, of the McGill newsletter and the Benson Clark resource uh, to try to give just some general guidelines as to what these expense categories are and about how much goes into each expense according to these surveys. So the first category has to do with our team, uh, our clinical team and our clerical team. 
That's our largest expense. It represents about 23% of uh, collections on average, with slightly more of that going towards clinical wages versus clerical. So maybe 13% to clinical and 10% to clerical or administrative. Uh, And I said wages, but of course, this category also represents bonuses, uh, payroll taxes, any fringe benefits, uniforms, all those things would go into this category as well. So 23% broken down slightly in favor of our clinical team. Our second category is our clinical expenses, professional supplies and expenses, and that represents the cost of brackets, wires, glue, uh, disposables. Uh, It also is a place where we put our lab costs, and so that could be our retainers. It could also mean our Invisalign or whatever uh, we're using uh, for outside labs would go into that. And industry standard right now is about 12% for that category, and it depends a lot on your practice, you know, if you're using more expensive Uh, brackets. If you have a higher percentage of Invisalign in your practice, that number we would expect to be a little bit higher, but 12% is a good number. Next, we have our occupancy cost, how much it costs for our facility. Here, we're talking about rent. We're talking about uh, utilities. We're talking about repairs and maintenance. Uh, Perhaps you put computers in this category. Uh, So we're looking at all of the physical costs for us to be in our space. Um, Housekeeping, janitorial would certainly fall in this category, trash removal. And that averages about 10.5% across the industry. Again, depending on how many locations you have and the cost of real estate in your area will make that number vary, but that's kind of the ballpark number. And lastly is what I call business management. This is um, you know, non-operational, doesn't have to do directly with uh, treating patients, but this is where we put our office supplies. Um, this is where we put our marketing budget. This is where we put all these other kind of miscellaneous costs that you have to run the business maybe our accountant or local taxes, any other costs that we incur to run the business would go into this category and they add up because the industry standard here is about 12.5% for that category as well. So when we add these all together, we're looking at about 58% as the industry standard for overhead. But I want to comment on that number because I know lots of practices where the number is much higher, either because they have a high overhead practice or more frequently because they're in a growing practice. And so in a growing practice, the percentage of your fixed costs are much higher than uh, in in an established practice with a lot of production. And on the other side, I know practices where this overhead percentage is much lower uh, in the 40s percent. I even know practices that have in the 30s for their overhead percentage. So uh, that number can be much lower. And to that point, one of the best ways to drive down some of these categories is to grow your top line number. If we grow our production, our collections also increase, and our expenses as a percent of those uh, collection production numbers uh, are lower. So that's, that's one thing to keep in mind here. When we look at how these break down category to category, again, there's going to be a lot of variation. If you're way out of whack on one of these, it's good to have a reason why. It's good to be able to explain that to yourself. It's also hopeful that if you have one area that's higher, maybe you have another area that's lower. So if you're using fancy self-ligating brackets, if you're using lots of Invisalign treatment, hopefully that decreases the need for a lot of employees. You know, the purported benefits of these technologies are that they save on time and they save on our labor costs. Well, hopefully that's actually reflected in our numbers, that we have a lower percentage then going towards our clinical team uh, because we've invested so heavily into these technologies. So take a look at how these all compare and break it down. The next thing that I think is important to really understand is 
you know, we talk about this in terms of percentage, and that's great, but eventually we have to pay our bills with uh, dollars, not with percents. And so I would take your collection goal for 2018 and multiply it by this overhead percent to really understand what your overhead is on a dollar basis. So that way you can come up with a monthly budget approximately for how much you're going to spend. So if your uh, monthly collections are $100,000 and you're running a 58% overhead, well, then you can kind of have in your mind that every month you're going to be spending about $58,000 on expenses to run the business. So that's, that's, that's a good thing to keep in mind as well. Another thing that I think is important is to look at your marketing budget. So that falls into this business management, this non-operational uh, category. And I think that number should vary, and, and this is according to McGill Newsletter, based on what your production goals are. So when you're setting that budget for marketing, I think it's one thing to really hone in on and say, look, if we're not as busy as we need to be, maybe that marketing budget needs to go from 2% to 4% or 6% or 8%. Uh, whatever it is that you think you can spend, assuming you those dollars can translate into new patients to help grow your collections, that might be an area of your overhead that you're going to tweak a little bit. Lastly, I would go through line by line. My my profit and loss, and we can talk a little bit more about how I do uh, the accounting in our practice, but it's really broken down into subcategories of these, which allow me to kind of go line by line and say, okay, what was my internet expense? What was my uh, lab bill, not uh, from Invisalign? What was my housekeeping expense? All of these things, and just look at last year's versus this year's. You're looking for any big jumps or things that you can't explain, or maybe there's a big drop uh, because you didn't categorize something properly or your accountant didn't put it in the right uh, place. So it's good at least once a year to go through all of these uh, items line by line so that you can really understand where your costs are. If you do this, I think it will help you as you think about 2018 to really understand where you stand, to be able to make decisions as you decide what to invest in or what areas you feel like you can cut back on. Uh, The first thing is obviously having an understanding of where you are and then being able to set a goal for the new year. All right, that's enough on budgeting. Let's get into today's interview. Dr. Maz Mashiri was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and received his bachelor's degree in neurobehavioral biology from Emory University. He then went on to obtain his doctorate, master's in oral biology, and certificate of advanced training in orthodontics from the University of Louisville. Dr. Mashiri is a diplomat of the American Board of Orthodontics and a fellow of the International College of Dentists. Currently, he's a clinical assistant professor at St. Louis University's orthodontic residency program with a focus on clinical oversight and lectures regarding Invisalign. Dr. Mashiri is a lecturer for Align Technology, traveling internationally to educate orthodontists on the proper use of the appliance. He has also published scientific articles for Invisalign in addition to peer-reviewed orthodontic journals on a variety of other orthodontic topics. Dr. Mashiri is married with two small children. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast, Dr. Mashiri. Thank you so much, Lance, for having me. Very honored to uh, be a part of this amazing venture that you've started. Thanks, Maz, and I'm, I'm glad you're here with us. How, how old are your kids? So my son, Shia, just turned three in September, and my daughter, Sadira, is almost 10 months. So I uh, just started sleeping, fingers crossed, uh, this week through the night. So that's been a game changer. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. Those are busy, busy times. I think three is was like the craziest age for both my kids. 
it's 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 amazing just seeing my son growing up and uh, every single day like his vocabulary keeps changing and just uh, the ideas and thoughts he puts together i just i feel like i don't want to miss a moment it's really amazing I, I had that too, but I also had the three-year-old that was just like tearing the house apart. The twos, they, they're like terrible twos. I was like, that was fine. But then it got to threes and it was like, oh boy, here we go. That's what everyone's telling me I'm preparing for it because he just turned three <laughs> last month. So uh, it, it's just, it, it, like you said, it's very busy. I feel like I don't get to, uh, unfortunately, spend as much time with my daughter as I did with my son at the same age growing up because I come home and he's like full force, just, you know, he's all boy, just full energy, <laughs> go, go, go until I just, ba- I barely am able to put him down before I can put my feet up from the long day. So uh, it's awesome. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's challenging at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to get into this. Your, your father is an orthodontist. And so that kind of, obviously, there's that family connection there. There, there must have been something you observed as, you know, as a child or a teenager that kind of drew you towards choosing orthodontics as a career. And, and I'm wondering what that was. It actually was nothing. I uh, wanted nothing to do with orthodontics <laughs> for a while. <laughs> yeah. um, to be honest with you, I wanted to go into medicine. And uh, I went to, uh, I actually got into med school out of high school. I got into UMKC six-year program. And I basically denied my admission. I decided that if I really wanted to be a good physician, that I needed to be a good person first and just uh, really develop myself. So I wanted to go to college. And uh, that was much to my father's chagrin. He really was uh, not very happy about that. That's probably one of the more upset times I've ever uh, had with them in terms of my decision making. But it all turned out for better because when I was in school, when I was at Emory, I had shadowed really one too many doctors. And I saw a couple people, a couple people die on the table. And uh, it was just too much for me. I really couldn't handle it. I didn't have the spine for that. And uh, really kind of then reflected back on what my dad was doing. I did, you know, I did sterilization and clean up and some lab work for him growing up, but it was just a job. I never thought of it as a career until that happened. And as soon as I set my sights on uh, orthodontics, you know, it was, it was, that's all I wanted to do. I literally applied to dental school with the only sole focus of obviously getting into orthodontics. And uh, you may not know this, Lance, but my mom is actually an endodontist as well. So, uh, yeah, the whole family uh, are are dentists. And my sister, of course, is my associate or my partner eventually, but she just joined the practice. So it's a it's a very boring dinner conversation. (laughs) Sundays. <laughs> it, so. It's so funny how dentistry you know runs in families. My my parents were not dentists, but my sister is a dental hygienist in North Carolina. Her husband oh, wow. is a dentist. My brother is actually interviewing for dental schools this fall uh, as we speak. So, and that, that's like wow. all the siblings I have. So, you know, it's it's interesting how that seems to happen. Um, what? So you you mentioned your you know your are you still practicing with your father? So my dad uh, still works Tuesday through Thursday, essentially. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he's at work. Uh, Mondays and Fridays, he's off. And uh, he's he's 65, approaching 66. Uh, you know, I never want him to retire, you know, only if he would ever want to. But I, I, he really has a passion for orthodontics. He was an educator for a very long time. He And the, and the dynamic in our office is really that when he's in there, he's, he's seeing patients, but not so much. He's really more doing uh, exams. And that's mm-hmm. really what he enjoys. He enjoys and loves the cognitive aspect of being there. And I do think there's a calm associated with that when some uh, parents and patients come in, they see that they have this, uh, you know, this, this veteran in front of them that really knows it all. And he, he, one of the beauties of working with the family is that uh, even though we probably are not a three doctor practice by volume, uh, 
you know, he can go into the console and he can take his time and he's not in a rush. Right. He's not looking at the GPS. He's not trying to run out of the console room. And that's, that's, that's huge for us. You know, you take, it really takes his time to explain things and the, the patients love, I think the process when he's in there. So, you know, I wouldn't change that for the world. And as long as he, he wants to be there, I would love to have him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming there are all sorts of advantages and, and probably some disadvantages of, of working, you know, with, with, <laughs> two other doctors that are your family members. I mean, what's your experience been with that? So, you know, I'll start with my dad. When I first joined the practice, uh, this was almost 10 years ago, I was essentially like a bull in a china shop. I came out guns blazing and I had all these ideas. And, um, you know, my father had his, his status quo and we had a lot of friction in those first years on uh, really it was mainly over money. And uh, it had nothing to do with salary. It was more of me wanting to spend money to grow the business because I understood that marketing was such a big component of growing the business. And uh, at some point, you just got to swallow your pride. And, and I'm talking about myself. And just you know, take things worth a grain of salt. Look at your opportunity. Look at your blessings. And realize that you have you have you do have time to do things. But everything is so uh, instant when you get out of school. You have all this pent up energy because you're like you know, freedom, I just got out and you just want to, you know, conquer the world. But there's this whole other <laughs> mountain, you know, this whole mountain to climb, you just started again. So uh, we settled in quite nicely, uh, really, for some time where uh, he was doing his thing, I was doing my thing, we, we were we were clicking so well in the office, chemistry was amazing. Uh, and we just, you know, he had his role, I had mine, very symbiotic, we, we really synergized very well. And then my sister joined as well. And that kind of really threw a wrench in the situation for us because one is, you know, we weren't really ready for her to join a guest. We're not a three doctor practice. So just volume wise, that's always a little bit deflating and just being frank that, you know, you're, you're accepting salary for another person to come in and, uh, you know, but it's family. So you, you do what you, you do what you can. You love your family, you support them. Uh, but then again, there's another set of ideas that come into practice, another set of expectations and managing that. So. I think communication is very key uh, in, in an instance like that, just trying to know what the individuals, meaning uh, myself and my sisters, what our individual expectations are because they're different for certain. We are very different people, my sister and myself. Uh, she, if you meet her, is probably the most loving and caring person you'll ever know. Uh, just everyone loves her when they meet her. She's uh, always in the moment, but uh, to the point where you know, I, I'm kind of like ADD where I'm in the moment, but I'm not because I'm trying to process everything else going on around me and I'm jumping attention all the time. And she's like solely in the moment, you know, so her showing up to work sometimes is something that we've had some friction over and she's, she's on time, but on time for me is like an hour early on time for her is maybe <laughs> half an hour early. You know what I mean? So those little things though, if you're not communicating properly are what can, uh, you know, make the, make the mountain fall. And, uh, we we're constantly working on it, but I know that at the end of the day, being family and just knowing the person she is, that she has the best interest of our patients at, at heart. And that's, at, that's the most important thing is that she loves the patients. She cares about orthodontics. She cares about being a good orthodontist. Those are the things that are trivial at the end of the day. And it's just a matter of talking through them, but it's like anything else, you know, you have a hundred amazing patients and you focus on the one negative one that might come in. It's the same thing with family. You can't always focus on the negative. You got to look at the positive and you got to count your blessings again. So, right, right. So what, what does your practice look like today? I know you guys do a lot of Invisalign. What's, what's a typical kind of day for us? Do you have one office or more than one office? So we used to have three. And, um, when I joined my dad's practice, uh, 
again, about 10 years ago, we had two offices in St. Louis. One was what we would consider our main one. One was maybe a satellite that we went to one day a week. And then my father actually went to Springfield, Missouri, which was three hours away for a week. And uh, it was just an interesting practice because it was uh, he used to be the chairman at WashU at the ortho program. And there was a pediatric dentist in Springfield that offered him his practice when he was retiring, so he gave it to him. And uh, his ortho patients, the pedo was also saying ortho. And it was just, you know, one, two days a month. That was it. But that practice eventually grew to six days a week. So he would drive down there, get a hotel room from Tuesday through Saturday, and he would see patients and had a completely different team there. And he was seeing like 80, 90 people a day down there uh, by himself. And he couldn't drop that practice. It was a wildly successful practice. It was producing as much in one week as St. Louis was in three and when I joined him, you know, I was pretty much twiddling my thumbs because he was going to Springfield and we were only really seeing patients about two days a week in uh, St. Louis. So that, that, that's, a, that's a cursing and it's also a blessing because, you know, I was able to, it's a curse and a blessing. I was able to uh, really focus my, on my skills. You know, I was, I, I was reading a lot. I was learning in business line a lot. I was marketing a lot. I was pounding the pavement. And uh, eventually the practice now grew where we've sold the satellites because we, uh, just logistically, our, our main practice was growing so much and we didn't want to rob Peter to pay Paul type deal. And uh, we got rid of the satellites and now we just have one, the one office in, in Maine, St. Louis, uh, in the Creve Core area of St. Louis, which we see patients four days a week, about 80 to 90 patients a day. And, uh, you know, we have one admin day that we go in and get caught up on things. But I really enjoyed selling off those satellites. Uh, the satellite in St. Louis was 45 minutes away. As I mentioned, Springfield was three hours away. And the staff didn't like going to the satellite. I didn't personally enjoy going to the satellite. It wasn't my office. We were renting from a general dentist. It wasn't my equipment. We had to take equipment there. It just was, it was a pain. And it was a tough practice to grow because it was also out of a general dentist practice. So there's a psychological barrier, I think, to people referring into a GP's office when you're renting space for them. And after a period of time, the referrals dry up, right? You know, the GP sends you all the referrals and you know we were there for 10 years so we were at the end of that 10 year period i was like you know what i think we're plateauing here and it's hard to grow this practice and our main one's growing so much let's put all of our eggs in one basket and sharpen the sword yeah that's yeah that's great and as someone who has uh you know i operate three locations i i'm a little bit envious of uh that you know i i love my three offices but some days man it's uh, the logistics of it and they're not as far apart as as three hours but uh Right, you know, uh, to be able to focus on one location, I think is is a pretty big luxury in some ways in, in today's market. I love it. I live I live five minutes away. You know, to I get home to my family right away. You know, I get to spend as much time at home as possible. I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for anything. And I know the reason why people have satellites, and I get it. Uh, but I I much prefer this model, having experienced both. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned you know having some time to to work on your skills and kind of hone your your clinical expertise. And I know one of the areas that you really focused on was Invisalign and, and trying to master that uh, technique. How, how, what kind of drew your attention to that? How did, how did you get involved with that initially? So when I was still in residency in, in Louisville, Kentucky, I had just taken my ABO part two boards there and the written exam. And excuse me, I think that's part one boards, isn't it? Maybe there's yep. two parts. I can't, I can't recall. It's part one boards. Pardon me. Uh, and the next day, there was an Invisalign study club in Lexington, Kentucky. So I drove down there and David Boschkin was speaking. So he was my first real Invisalign talk. And I was floored by his talk at the time because he was showing things that I thought 
Invisalign couldn't do. And then uh, sitting across the table from me was a gentleman by the name of Dan Gurman. And Dan Gurman had been a resident of my father's at Louisville. My dad also uh, was a part-time teacher at Louisville for almost 30 years. And he would go teach there two days a month. And uh, Dan came up to me and said, you know, Maz, I, I know who you are. I know your dad. Uh, and if you ever meet Dan, he's just the most humble and amazing person inside out. But he was uh, saying that, you know, I feel like I uh, owe your dad a lot. And I just want to show you something that I think uh, may add value to you. If you would, you know, come visit me in my practice, I would appreciate it. And uh, Dan was practicing in Dayton, Ohio. So if it tells you anything about Dan right there, just the beginning of the story, he had driven from Dayton, Ohio to Lexington to attend an Invisalign study club. So he caught my attention. And I went and visited him before I joined private practice with my father. And I actually took the time to visit five different practices before I got uh, out of residency and joined my father because I wanted to just soak up as much as I could from other doctors because I think there's extreme value in that. But Dan's probably had the most value to me. And in going to his office at that time, this was uh, 2007, so 10 years ago exactly, Dan was seeing about 100 patients a day. Uh, if not more, to be honest. And the clinic was running beautifully. And he was seeing about half those patients were Invisalign. And this was at a time where I was repeatedly told that Invisalign is a garbage appliance that doesn't work. And yet, when I went to his office, he was treating every single sort of malocclusion. And he was treating uh, really to the same detail as he would try to treat with fixed. And it was mind the definition of mind blowing when you see those uh, you know emojis or characters like that's the, <laughs> that that's the feeling i had like my lid was blown um and it was it was it was clairvoyancy for me it was like seeing into the future you know uh, it was it was it was a window of opportunity that i saw that and i was like this is going to blow up and i and i and i knew that and i saw that so i told myself i was like i i'm going to do this i'm going to learn how to master this appliance and i'm going to do what dan's doing right now because I see that this is the future of the profession. I see this is going to blow up. And if I'm going to join my dad's practice, that's only two days a week. And if it's a one doctor practice and I really want to grow the practice, I have to bring my, in my own niche. Uh, you know, I asked Dan, I, I, you know, he was a mentor to me. I contacted him quite frequently asking him, you know, what to do? How did he learn? And, uh, it, basically at the end of the day, it's just taking as much C as possible. I watched every single CE on Invisalign's. Well, website. I went to Costa Rica uh, early on before I even had a tech and just tried to just soak up everything I could. And I just started doing it. I started doing as much as I could, as fast as I could. And I was making a significant amount of mistakes. I was uh, just, it wasn't good in the beginning, uh, <laughs> but I never, I never bailed. And, uh, you know, Scout's Honor with Invisalign, I've treated close to 800 people in my practice more if you count what I'm doing at SLU, I've only put braces on three people. Uh, and I think that's the biggest failure that orthodontists would make is to bail on something and put braces on. I'm not talking about segmental mechanics. I'm not talking about partial mechanics and the buckle occlusion. I'm talking about, it's just not going well and you put full on braces because you're like, you know, just forget this. I, I know what I can do with braces because you really don't see what didn't happen. If you focus on what did not happen, and you ask yourself why it didn't happen and how you could improve it, you know, that's how you learn. That's how you, you jump your learning curve. But if you just bail on it, it's not going to happen. And I think the appliance has come a long way where that's happening less and less, thankfully, for a lot of doctors. But that refinement, that, that those additional liners that you get, that's the biggest learning opportunity to really 
see uh, what what you can really gain from that case and how you can improve on your hone your skills for future patients. Right. It seems like as you kind of develop these techniques, you know, at what point did you feel like you were really getting a grasp on that? I mean, was there a kind of a turning point or, you know, now you're even teaching this stuff. So at what point did you kind of feel like you were moving from the student to the teacher? So I, I had a, uh, I had an aha moment in my practice and it had to do with, because uh, again, I was taking all the CE and I kept hearing something in CE that was really bothering me because I didn't agree with it. And you talk about this, that, that turning point where student becomes teacher, I guess, is that when I started disagreeing with the teacher and what the turning point was, was this. And it was, it was like many things in life. It was chance. It was, it was opportunity uh, and it was luck. So I mentioned that my dad uh, treated and was niched out and we still are for treating a lot of TMD cases in St. Louis. And with these TMD cases, our goals are always to get them uh, asymptomatic. We make them a splint. And we send them to either, uh, usually a physical therapist 90% of the time, sometimes a chiropractor. And if our splint therapy helps them and we're able to alleviate pain, headaches, locking, increased range of motion, uh, if we're able to achieve that for them, then we know that maybe we could help them with their bite as well to maintain their symptom-free state. And traditionally, these patients were always going into braces. So we would, our, our workhorse splint is what's called a pivot splint. It's a lower splint mandibular splint that the patient wears for usually five to nine months. And if they're asymptomatic, we would transition them into upper braces. We would then, in the braces, and we're in an 18 slot, move into about a, a 1622 or 1725 wire. And then that essentially turns the upper arch into a splint against the lower. We would wean the patient off the lower splint and then get them into lower braces. The majority of these patients that you have in mandibular splint therapy and, and the pivot splint tend to posture more forward. And what's essentially happening is that the splint is increasing their joint space. They're posturing forward to get away from the retrodiscal tissue, from their retrodiscitis, from their inflammation. And they're, they're posturing onto their disc. So they're getting away from the stretched ligaments. And we're not trying to recapture the disc. That's not what this is. We're not anteriorly repositioning. And they just posture there. Some people go left. Some people go right. Most people will come anteriorly. So we document that. And then that's where we, again, want to capture their bite in terms of either uh, extruding their posterior teeth, leveling the curve of speed, whatever the case may be. Well, of course, the majority of these patients are adult females. So as Invisalign became more and more prevalent, they were asking for Invisalign as their uh, really appliance of choice to transition into phase two. And we pretty much, at some point, my dad got tired of saying no, and I came in, you know, guns blazing, wanting to try to do Invisalign. So that's when we went all in. But what we realized is very quickly uh, that a lot of these patients' symptoms start coming back. And that didn't happen in braces. And uh, the reason why what we're hypothesizing is that the presence of the plastic anteriorly on these patients, especially if they were clenching, was distalizing their mandible again. And it was bringing their symptoms back. So we purposefully started from the get-go over treating the anterior significantly. In all these patients, meaning intrusion and torque, something that wasn't being taught necessarily at the time. And we were finding that when we started doing that, not only were our patients symptom free for longer, that they were doing better, but our finishes were substantially better because those two movements are the, are really the, probably, the, I don't want to say the negatives, but they're the, they're the weak spot of the aligners are torque and intrusion and they need over treatment. So I was going to all these courses and I kept hearing the instructors at the time saying, well, post your open bites, 
presence of the plastic posteriorly. It's just because of the thickness of the liner. So just cut your trays, let the teeth settle. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, that's not true. There are so many reasons for posterior open bites. And that maybe is one of them. But if you tell a, a doctor to cut your tray, to settle the teeth with the mandible stuck in a more distal position, what's the condyle fossil relationship? And how is that helping the patient? And is that a stable functional occlusion or a stable functional joint relationship for them? And, uh, you know, so I went to my midline rep at the time. I was like, this is wrong. I don't agree with what's being taught. And this is the reason why. And, uh, you know, he said at the time, well, do you want to, do you want to say something about it? Do you want to give a talk on it? I said, I'd be happy to. And so at that point, uh, my first talk was, uh, I think four years ago or five years ago, I was at AAO, whenever the Philadelphia AAO was. And uh, I gave a booth talk for Invisalign and the rest was history. So, Wow. I think that's pretty interesting. And I, and I appreciate you taking the time to go through that. And um, I don't think I've ever spent a lot of time thinking about the connection between, you know, Invisalign and, and uh, joint symptoms. And so I think that was, that was a great discussion. So, so you're now an instructor at St. Louis University and you're teaching a, a course dedicated to aligner therapy. And I think we talked about you and I in the pre-interview that this is only one of a handful of, of orthodontic programs that have a, a dedicated graded course um, on aligner therapy. Why do, why do you think there's so few of those in 2017? Uh, I think, Lance, honestly, it's a lack of curriculum, um, uh, of really a, a curriculum that either the, the doctors can present in terms of just uh, someone to come in a lecture on it. I know Align has had a push where they uh, have tried to create a formal curriculum for the doctors. Uh, and uh, obviously, there, I think there's a conflict of interest for the universities to accept that all the time, uh, you know, because at, at some point, at what point is it science and, you know, biomechanics and at what point is it towing the company line type thing? Uh, yep. So there's a fine line there. But the things that I know, I've spoken at several universities where a line has brought me in and I just give my, my talk and it's not necessarily the messaging of a line per se. It's more of just really the, the nitty gritty and, you know, the good and the bad. Uh, but I think it's just lack of curriculum. I, I know I've had several people contact me from uh, various universities saying, can you please give me an example of your course curriculum? And anything you give to help me to develop a curriculum would be greatly appreciated. And I, and I gladly share everything I have in terms of that with the instructors because I think that that's important for our profession. We need to be specialists in moving teeth regardless of the appliance. If it's lingual, if it's buccal, labial, if it's plastic, uh, if it's an, a re- an appliance, if it's a spring retainer, whatever it is, we have to be specialists in moving teeth with whatever is given to us. And if we're not learning that in school, then where are we learning it? And then who's yeah. teaching it to us? You know, So that's the tough thing. Uh, I, I think it's very important that our profession and our universities uh, adopt a formal, clear aligner course. I mean, if we're, if you look at it, I mean, it's being taught to GPs at the undergrad level, you know, at, at the mm-hmm. uh, in the dental school level at some schools. So how is it not being taught at the ortho programs is uh, is upsetting to me. And I was uh, taken aback and honored that Dr. Barents uh, at the time, Dr. Ruggio took me out to lunch, and they offered me. A teaching position there. And I was, that was an intimidating lunch for me. Uh, Dr. Behrens is uh, one of the nicest men and as is Dr. Ruggio. Uh, but those guys are, are, uh, are giants in the profession. And I was just very humbled by the invitation to go there. And, uh, you know, it was, it was something that I took very seriously. So 
we've, we've developed a curriculum there. Uh, it's been something that the first year sit through, but then the second and third years sit through again. Uh, it's, it's tough teaching Invisalign also, Lance, because, you know, when you treat implant braces, you put the braces on the teeth, all you do is uh, everything is chair side in terms of what to, what to look at. But you do clin checks, they're waiting for me to get back to them on their clin check. And it's not yeah. just when I'm at school. So that really is the challenge is uh, diagnosing, setting up the clin check with the residents and, you know, the nuances and uh, logistics of going back and forth. And then getting the case accepted, unfortunately, the patient normally, uh, you know, we try to get it back as soon as we can, but they usually have to wait a couple of months before yeah. they can start treatment. In addition to whatever their waiting list was to get into the school, um, you know, but I mean, we are, we have, we're, we're slammed there uh, in terms of like waiting lists for Invisalign. It's very busy at the school. So thankfully, the residents, I think, are getting a good experience, um, yeah. but it's, it needs to be done at all schools, I think. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting thing, and I think it's a fantastic opportunity for the residents at SLU. I mean, I even think, like, who would teach these courses? I'm, obviously, they're lucky to have you, but I think it also kind of indicates how new Invisalign is in, in some ways that, you know, I, for instance, might feel like I could teach something to residents about treating with a fixed appliance, but I would feel totally underqualified to teach them anything about aligners, and I, I think there's, like, lots of people in that position, so I think there's they're, you know, developing that pool of qualified instructors also, you know, is something that's, that's kind of ongoing. Yeah. And I, I think it's, there's people starting to, you know, step up and I think fill those shoes slowly. Uh, but, you know, the residents crave it. They want it. Yeah. You know, they, they definitely, they definitely want that knowledge. They want the, the newest. And, uh, you know, I even mean, remember being in school, I think, you know, at the time when I was in residency, t- tads and lasers were the thing. <laughs> and I was, yeah. I was wanting to put a screw in everyone's head that came in. <laughs> Uh, exactly. you know, so it's, uh, yeah, d- definitely it's important that the residents get that experience. Yeah. So in the meantime, you know, maybe with this dearth of, uh, you know, orthodontic residency based instruction, you have decided with Dr. Jonathan Nicosesis to start uh, an online lecture series called the Aligner Intensive Fellowship. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the program. How does it differ from you know, what might people might get from, you know, a vendor sponsored in-person CE course. So the fellowship um, essentially was an idea that stemmed from a visit that Jonathan uh, Nicosis and I had, and it was from an idea we had about four years ago. And what had happened was uh, I was just sitting there and I was friends with Jonathan, you know, just kind of communicating through Facebook. We did uh, a course together for the OE uh, forum uh, in Arizona that was sponsored by Align. And we had put together, it was like about a two-day course. And I was just thinking afterwards, it's like, you know, Jonathan, there's really a lack of information out there for our profession to learn how to do Invisalign. Why don't we come up with a textbook? And he's like, yeah, I'd love to. So he flew down to St. Louis. We went to a hotel. We had uh, literally for two days, we went and we just hammered out ideas on how to formulate the chapters of an aligner textbook. And we had organized it very neatly and we put it on a silver platter and we presented it to Invisalign. And we said, we would like you to help us to publish this book. And they came back and kind of thought about it and they said, not interested. And we were kind of deflated by that. Yeah, but truth be told, we also had no clue how to publish a book or what would be involved in that and the time it would take to even go through something like that. 
So the idea completely uh, fell on his face and went into the back burner. And since that period of time, uh, you know, more and more kind of, uh, you know, private Facebook groups popping up and we're just kind of sitting around and I actually kind of owe it to my wife because uh, she knew that I had all this information and I was frustrated by the experience. She said, why don't you just start like a Facebook study group and just present it uh, that way, you know, and just, you know, you have all your PowerPoints presentations. Why don't you do something about that? And I mean, it was like a huge light bulb went off. I started freaking out. I was like running around my house. I picked up my phone. I called Jonathan immediately. I was like, Jonathan, this is how we're going to do this. This is going to get to so many people. This is the, this is the way we learn. It's so accessible. People don't have to leave their practice. They can do it on their cell phone. This is how we have to do this. We are going to educate the masses. This is going to be uh, so user-friendly. It's really the way we need to go about doing this. So, and, and I had no one else in mind really to be my partner but him. Uh, just because, first of all, the, the, you know, the medium we're using, right? He, he was so involved on Facebook, much more than I am and still is, in terms of being there and answering questions for people. He's constantly educating on that, on that medium. And uh, if you look at us too, Jonathan and I, our speaking styles are very different. And uh, we each speak differently too, meaning on, on different topics. So we thought there was value in that. And that's kind of how we felt like at the OE meeting that uh, the cadence was different. The topics were different. Even some of the ways we did things, if we were moving the same tooth, we would move it differently. But there was value to that because really people want, I think, it's like when you go to any meeting, if you go to the AAO, they usually have those seminars three in a row and it could be on the same topic, but you heard the people say different things. And there's a value to that. Uh, so it's very, it's very raw. It's very truthful. We don't sit there and try to blow smoke about what Invisalign can and cannot do. It's a very real course. And that's what we're trying to teach is that it's, it's not affiliated with Invisalign, by the way. Uh, so the course is standalone. It's something that we're trying to teach people how to move teeth with plastic. So we've had some people even comment that, you know, forget Invisalign. I'm learning how to move teeth with 3D printers, you know, and, and making my in-house aligners because it's biomechanics. Biomechanics is biomechanics. And right. it's, it's a, it's a very in-depth biomechanics dive. Uh, of how to move teeth with plastic. We, of course, uh, comment a lot on Invisalign because that's the biggest player right now and that's what's most relevant. So uh, if something else came along, I'd probably, you know, include that in the material. But it's, it's just trying to keep people up to date. And it's really uh, as the biggest complaint I got about the class, uh, without exaggeration, is that's too much information. That's, that's uh, exactly. But, so I participated in the first course and I can attest that the quality of the material is excellent, and you can ask all you. you know the stupid questions that like I had and, you know, I could throw out there. <laughs> but but the volume of information is a little overwhelming. So if people want to sign up, they really need to commit some time every week to really stay current with the course because you guys, you know, the the it's not light on details or you know light on information. It's it's everything you want to know, and then probably a bit more. I, you know, and I appreciate you, you being a part of it and, and for the feedback. It's, we didn't know how else to do it because, uh, I've had, I've had two comments. Uh, one, one doctor said, you probably need to give like a, a really a, a bigger fair warning, uh, ahead of time <laughs> on the course because I just wasn't prepared for this. And some of the things I wanted to institute with my team and I just needed to, you know, have a, a more of a fair warning, which I, which I, which I appreciate that feedback. And we always want feedback because we want to, you know, make it as best as we can. Uh, but the other thing was, you know, somebody say, well, can you make it eight months long? And it's <laughs> like, it's like, well, if you make it eight months long, you're going you're to take eight months. And you're still going to probably say it was too much information. So at some point, yeah. 
you just gotta, you know, uh, you know Greg Jorgensen, who's a, who's a, who I consider him a friend, uh, really summarized it the best as I think you put, is that you have to approach it like a residency and it's a four month yeah. residency. Do it at a time in your life where you know you can commit four months and just hammer it out. Uh, but yeah. if you do that, I think you're going to find you come out of it and you're going to have a much better acumen of what you need to do to push teeth with plastic. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, you, you mentioned um, uh, some of the cases that maybe at the beginning for you seemed kind of hard to believe or your mind was blown. What are some examples of cases that at one point you thought, you know, can't, couldn't be moved with aligners and now for you seems to be a, a more routine thing? So uh, that's a that's a great question, Lance. Uh, to to be frank, and this is without exaggeration, we treat every single type case type within this line. We 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 feel like we can every single one except for one, and that one is a deep bite with spacing. So if you have a patient that presents to your practice that is a deep bite with spacing, there are several factors that are working against you. And I'm going to get back to your question is about which are the best ones. But I think this is more important because I want to keep people out of traps and, and really failure is more importantly. A deep eye with spacing presents to your practice that way because uh, first of all, and this is in the absence of a tooth size discrepancy, that patient has a low angle, mus- low angle skeletal structure, normally speaking, and a very strong musculature. And that musculature over the period of time has developed their jaws to be very broad, and hence they have spacing and absence of crowding, in addition to potential attrition that could cause that as well for those people. So you put plastic in their mouth, and I think of plastic as an arch wire. It's your least stiff arch wire, and you're trying to level that curvus B or intrude those anterior teeth. You know, I, I 99% of my cases with my fixed appliances, I finish in a TMA wire, but I have stainless steel in my practice, of course, for a reason, and it's for those people right? That I need to level their curve. I need to put in a stiffer wire. And stiffness is a, is a property of the wire we need to level curves of speed at times. And uh, furthermore, if they have spacing, when you close spacing with Invisalign, the bite always deepens. And the clean check will never predict it, ever. So if you don't know that and you don't anticipate it, I've had cases where there were deep bites with spacing that the Case literally finished deeper when I finished than when I started. When does that ever happen in braces? Never. You know, so unless you have tads in the palate and you're hooking up to them, you know what I mean? So it's one of those things that you have to know, uh, I think, case selection. So back to your original point, uh, in terms of case selection, I think the easiest ones and the ones that people always need to maybe if they want to put their toe in the water and approach would be patients that don't have vertical issues in terms of uh, being too deep. Patients that have more uh, open bite tendencies or have normal overbites are usually more of the slam dunk type cases with Invisalign. And I'm not concerned about the angles classification of their occlusion. Uh, I'm really concerned about the vertical when I diagnose and treat find cases, especially now. Let's say you're even not comfortable doing it with the plastic alone. You can use carry distalizers to do class two, class three. You can correct the AP in different ways in doing it with plastic. Not to say that you can't do it with plastic. Uh, it may take longer if you're trying to get comfortable with the nuances of the mechanics. Uh, you know, you, you have other things in your in your belt that you can use to address the AP, but the vertical is really the most important in trying to assess the, the ease of the case. So hist- historically speaking, my refinement rate is significantly less 
on patients that don't have uh, deep bite issues or torque issues. Because again, intrusion and torque anteriorly are one of the two more limited movements of the aligners. So if those two variables aren't significant on the patient, meaning anterior torque, so class 2, DIF2 type patients, or significant intrusion, that every day uh, is an Invisalign case and an easy one. Now, you could have compounding factors like, uh, you know, severe rotations of teeth, things of that nature, which you, which obviously are, are variables you have to consider. You can maybe do establish couples, put buttons on the teeth, rotate them, uh, you know, start one arch in Invisalign, do the opposite arch, get your couples established, rotate those teeth first, then move to the same day Essex and scan, and then, uh, you know, jump on the other arch. You have different ways of addressing those things, but uh, case selection mainly has to do, in my opinion, really with the vertical. That's that's a great answer and something that I don't think people are are considering as much. I think they're looking at some of those other factors, but uh, that does seem to make sense from from a biomechanic standpoint. Um, okay. Another question I have for you, Moss, is you know when you're you know there's an adjustment I think when people start doing a substantial volume of Invisalign treatment in in figuring out all of the workflows. You know, can you give us any tips on how you submit cases, how you how you do your clean checks or, or track the status and progress of cases in your office, you know, how, what, what are some, some kind of low hanging fruit items there that people can implement to, to smooth some of the logistics? Certainly. So, um, I, yeah, I, I can't claim to be an, an expert in this. I'll give you my ideas. I, I certainly think there's some better ones in mind, just like with anyone's business, but I hope that this provides value. So what, what we do, uh, in terms of, I'll go from A to Z, is that when we scan a case, we scan every single new patient console that comes into our, we have two iTero scanners, so we are digital in the scanning process, and we scan every single new patient for records regardless. But if they're an Invisalign case, of course, I get a lab slip filled out that's put on my desk, and that lab slip begins the process of essentially have tracking the case through onto the delivery of the attachment. So that lab slip instructs me then I have a, a, a worksheet that I've made. And uh, the worksheet is essentially a copy of Invisalign's website. Some people can leave this on the computer. I choose to print it out uh, just because I just like having the paper to thought very quickly. And I circle what essentially I see clinical conditions, you know, crowding, uh, you know, what teeth do I want to move, not move? Am I going to correct the uh, angles classification? Am I going to use precision cuts? Uh, how am I going to intrude the teeth? So on and so forth. That all is within uh, that worksheet. Again, it's an exact copy of Invisalign's website. And I give that piece of paper to my Invisal leader, whose name is Karen in the practice. And Karen then submits the case. Now, the importance of that is I'm on the computer enough, and I don't want to submit. And it actually takes a lot of time to submit a case. If you submit a case on Invisalign's website, you have to put in the patient information, blah, 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 blah. It's too long. I already know I'm going to be on the computer. I want to delegate that part. So case gets submitted. And it usually happens right away. I get the clean check up within one to two days. Now, here is where people have a lot of trouble is doing the clean check. And the clean check itself, it is extremely important that I think we all learn how to master clean check pro this software. And the software is, I think, the rate limiting factor in people really, not only their frustration, but also getting the case back in time. And it's because you're, depending on your technician to understand your version of English. And what I mean by that is our, you know, our orthodontic terminology or how we say things is different amongst all of us. And that really is, uh, it's lost in translation. 
it's very challenging for somebody who has English as a second language to understand what you're trying to say as an orthodontist when you went to a different residency than the other person that she just spoke to before. We all say things differently. You have to take control into your own hands and ClinCheck Pro is a way to do that. I barely talk to my technician. Who Her name is Susie. She's lovely. Uh, she really tries to do the best she can for me. But I basically give her a couple sentences in the beginning in terms of special instructions of what to do. And I take over from there. Uh, I do everything on my own, on my ClinCheck. I set everything up myself. The only thing I need to talk to her about is if there's gross issues I can't address, such as, you know, I, I saw this bite jump. It's eight millimeters. I need some distillation instead because it's not going to happen. I can't program in segmental distillation. So you still have to communicate to your tech inevitably. But once you can take that workflow and turn it into your own, you're going to find that uh, my average back and forth with Invisalign, I, they actually keep records of this. And I talked to uh, Stephanie McGrath, who's over in clinical education. I said, what's my average back and forth time? And she said it was around three. So three back and forths before I get my ClinCheck finalized, before I click approve. It used to be like six or seven before ClinCheck yeah. Pro came out. It used to be six or seven. So that dramatically has decreased my time. I do. I, I never, ever, ever do ClinCheck's from home. I don't. I used to. I used to when I was learning how to do Invisalign. I used to do it all the time. I was on my couch. I had on Netflix and I was doing ClinCheck's. That was my, that was my, if you, if you came home, you take a picture of me every night. I was parked on my couch, computer on my lap, doing ClinCheck's with Netflix up, speaking to my wife, you know, and just, uh, it was part of my routine. And that gets old after a while. And then you have kids and you're like, well, I can't do that. So, you know, it just, it, it forced me to hone my craft a little bit better, but also, uh, I realize that at work is really an opportune time for me to do that. So I give myself our lunches are about an hour and a half. And I find that's enough time for me to knock out uh, enough clin checks during the day, especially if you're only going back two or three times. I knock out my clin checks and then, you know, eat my lunch, you know, do treatment planning, whatever else I need, you know, make phone calls, whatever else I need to do that gives me plenty of time to do all that. I'm, of course, eating at the same time. I don't take a formal time to like sit there and enjoy my lunch. I'm like eating, <laughs> working at the same yeah. time, you know, just inhaling it. Uh, people line out the door, people asking you questions, you know how it is, but, um, you know, you just, you just do it and then you work it in between patients, you know, and you just, you just work it into your day. Now, so having ClinCheck aside, the mistakes that happen and one of the worst things that can happen is that you have a patient show up to your practice and their liners aren't there. And what the way we've gotten around that, that happens for two reasons. One, either there's a delay in you accepting the ClinCheck, of course, or two, the case never got submitted. And, if I didn't get a lab slip from the scan, I would never know to submit the case. So what we do for that is weekly, we run a report. So uh, one of my assistants, Stephanie, goes on uh, mylinetech.com. She, look she, she looks at all the uh, ITERO scans, matches them up to Invisalign's website, and makes sure that the people that were submitted for Invisalign are actually live in my queue. And if they're not live in my queue... She then goes through and highlights it for me on a, on a, on a report she runs on Dolphin. Uh, so she basically prints out all the patients that have deliveries, you know, so she'll print it out for four weeks out. Every patient has a delivery code for Invisalign because they, every patient gets scheduled. They just may not have the slip turned into me. So everyone that has scheduled, we confirm that they had their aligners actually accepted. And then, uh, in, in terms of then, you know, that's how we kind of hopefully have a fail safe on that. And that's also for Vivera retainers as well. We did the same report for that and also for refinements. So when you have refinements, again, you're getting trade deliveries. So that report includes all those things. And she runs it again weekly. 
when the trays come in, we have one assistant uh, whose name is Crystal to pack all the templates. All the templates are packed the day before. We do spray the trays with a food grade silicone. And that, in, in our estimate, has made uh, removal of the trays and demons less. If you have, uh, I'm sure, you know, in the fellowship and anyone who's heard me talk, I'm uh, very attachment heavy. And when you're as attachment heavy as I am, it's hard to take the template off. So, because there's just so much retention and there's actually some bonding between the template and the composite. So, we spray silicone inside the aligner. It helps us to remove the trays and decrease bond failures. And again, everything's packed ahead of the appointment, placed in a little retainer case, put back in the patient's box. And that saves a lot of time, at least usually 10 minutes of the assistant clinically. So they get to bond their attachments, go over everything in terms of instructions. I think our profession really, really needs to understand and learn that we need to focus on oral hygiene instructions for aligner patients because we always had this uh, false sense of security that was much more hygienic than braces. But I've had decal on aligners, and I know many other people have too. So oral hygiene instruction is important in that we tell patients what they can and cannot eat, no, nothing but water with the trays in, uh, so that, that there's really a patient education side that almost needs to take as much time, if not longer, than the actual bonding of the attachments. Uh, and then when that's done, the other system I would recommend for aligners and sorry if I'm going on a lot, Lance. No, this but is good information. A, it's an evolved question. Is that um, one thing that we've done that has really helped us out, I believe, is that across the board, for me personally, I have decreased my velocities by 30%. And the reason why I did that is that Invisalign recommended that we all go to weekly changes. But I know for a fact that you can't, in some patients, change their trays weekly. So deep bite cases, people that have torque issues, people that have significant rotations or root movement, you're going to have failures if you change your trays weekly. So we, uh, but, but, but on the flip side of that, there is a lot of merit to changing weekly in terms of the patient remembering to change your trays. You know, it's just one less thing to remember every Sunday, I'm going to change my trays versus every yep. other Sunday. Uh, hygiene, right? Is there, you get it, they're getting a cleaner aligner and also physiology, right? The most physiologic force orthodontically is a low, continuous force. If you're changing your trays every two weeks, that, that's no longer continuous. The whole reason why, and you know, the, the stress-strain diagram might show that, yes, technically it is because you have force, but it's not, it's not consistent. You know, I want a low, uh, consistent force that is, is constantly being there activated. So the reason why Invisalign changed the weekly changes, though, is that they're saying that each tray gives you a quarter of a millimeter movement. And our orthodontic literature supports the fact that you can get predictably one millimeter of movement per month. So they were saying, well, that means that go to weekly changes because that equals one millimeter. But there's so many other factors, again, density of bone, biology, difficulty of movement. Not everyone is a, is a cookie cutter, right? We customize treatment for patients, so you can't just say, hey, everyone change your trays weekly. That's not, that's not right. That's not fair. So we, we've done that to, again, garner the merits of what we found was beneficial from weekly changes, yet try to titrate our patients. So what I mean by that is by doing that 30% reduction, I have a lot more trays, obviously. Most of my cases have 50 or 60 trays when we get the boxes in. Uh, but we know that the patients are changing weekly. Patient comes in, we give them their trays, and I look them in the eye and I say, congratulations, you, you've started Invisalign today, you've started your journey to improve oral health, to a beautiful smile. Uh, I want you to realize that right now we're recommending weekly changes for you. What's going to determine length of your treatment is really two variables here. One, 
is how well I set up your clean check. Two is how well you wear your aligners. I can do nothing for you if you don't wear your aligners 22 hours a day. If I come back and I see you back in three months and you tell me your trays are fitting beautifully and I see you have been wearing them 22 hours a day, I can decrease your wear to five days. So I immediately, that first appointment, incentivize the patient that if they're being compliant, I can decrease their treatment time. And we monitor that. And then as opposed to giving them weekly changes, and I usually give them the box, and each box has 11 aligners in it. So I'll see them back in 11 weeks. Versus doing that, then I'll give them per per month, since they're changing every five days then, we give them six trays per month, and I see them back every two months. I shorten it up a little bit. So I was seeing them weekly, almost three months. Then I see them uh, every five days, almost two months. And, but, you know, I say, I might see you a little bit sooner, but again, we're trying to speed you up. And they appreciate that. That's worth a trade-off for them. So the other thing uh, with that is that because we're giving them boxes at a time, we purposely stage our IPR at every 11th tray. Because in terms of your systems, you don't want IPR to be triggered at tray six, but you're giving the patient a box. Because then you might have access to the contacts. You may forget to do it. So really, all attachments are at stage zero. All IPR is at uh, every tray 11. Because that allows me to literally give that patient a box and see them back and keep our systems going. You know, just make it easy in the clinic to manage our Invisalign patients. And there there are biomechanical merits to that. Uh, And this is, again, something that Jonathan, because this is I uh, disagree with. And it's not saying that he's right or I'm wrong or vice versa. It's just... How do you run your practice and what? how do you treat your patients? How do you want to treat them? What are your belief systems and so forth? For me, biomechanically, I would like to have round tripping in some cases, be it a, a deep bite or open bite. Because in a deep bite case, you get intrusion during proclination. And that, that favors my mechanics. So I'd rather procline the teeth a little bit, open the bite up, have access to my contacts, perform IPR later. But what about an open bite case? Well, if I have an open bite case... I want to, again, round trip. Why? Because if I procline the teeth and I give myself access to my contacts, I want all extrusion to be performed during lingual movement. So I round trip the teeth and ask for all my extrusion to be performed after space closure from IPR. So I stage an IPR accordingly because it favors my biomechanics and it favors the systems in the practice. Right. I feel like we could go, you know, all night with this. This is fantastic information, Moss. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more question here uh, about Invisalign before we kind of wrap things up. When you see patients back for their routine checks, give me the rundown. I mean, I think a lot of orthodontists are a little bit clueless as to what to do. You mean, you look and you're like, is it tracking? And if it is, great. And if it's not, you think like, well, that tooth isn't tracking, so we'll just go and fix it in the refinement another 20 or 30 trays from now. Like, what is it that you're actually doing at the uh, checks that, you know, you feel like is helping you finish the case better or, or motivate the patient or, or, or what's your purpose in those, in those kind of checks uh, during the treatment? That's a great question. Cause I think a lot of people have that question. Honestly, Lance is that when I come down chair side, I, I really depend on my assistant to do a lot of things for me before I sit down. So what they're, they're asked to do is that they have the patient, uh, they sit down with the trays in. They uh, write down on the tray sheet uh, how long have they been in the current tray, what aligner is it, and how how well they've been wearing the tray. So they kind of grade them on that and any teeth that are not tracking. So, again, how long have they been in the current tray, what tray number is it, and how is their compliance, what teeth are not tracking. 
So that's written down for me uh, as a summary on the tray. They then take the aligner out. They take a piece of floss and they pop every single contact. If there is a tight contact, I've calibrated them, we've trained them repeatedly to know what a tight contact is. They will take a single-sided perforated IPR strip and just floss that through the contact for me. And they're maybe performing like, uh, you know, 0.05 millimeters IPR. I know that makes some people skittish, but, you know, I can think of a lot worse things to do than just lightly open a contact. So they open a contact for me, note where they've done that, put the aligner back in, and then call me over. And I always want to see how the tray is fitting. So if I need to see the tray in the mouth, I come and look and make sure that everything is tracking well, that there's no broken attachments and so forth. And I can just do that from a very cursory glance. And then I take the trays out and I check the bite. Uh, I do have the clean check up just because I like to see for reference kind of where the patient should be. And of course, there's so many exaggerations and over treatments in clean check, especially in the first set of trays. It's hard to exactly know. So it really is guiding you most more than anything is the bite. But the most important thing at that visit is that the tray is fitting, you know. So if you have a generalized lack of fit, that usually is a compliance issue. If you have certain areas here and there that aren't fitting, that could be a lack of an attachment, a poorly designed attachment, a difficult tooth movement. But I don't get caught up in the minutia at that time, meaning that if there's one tooth or two teeth not tracking, I don't let that stop the progress of the treatment. You just keep going forward and, like you said, pick it up in refinement. But if it really gets out of control, you know, you have two options there. One, you can do some partial mechanics, add some buttons, bootstraps, uh, try to keep the case moving forward. Or you just say, you know what, uh, you're in a liner 30 out of 50. Uh, you've made great progress here, but I'm going to cut early and let's just get you a brand new fitting tray and keep moving forward. So majority of the time, when you start understanding uh, attachment design, biomechanics, you're going to find that those issues become less and less and less. And that's really the payoff. That's the big picture is that you get to sit down with the patient and just have a conversation with them. And there's really nothing to do. You just get up and walk away. And uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's thankfully kind of where we're at. You know, there's still, of course, things that come up here and there, but the majority of patients, we, they just wear their liners and they go home and we just give them more trays. And that's, that's what we need to strive for. And it is possible. I want people to know that, that, there is a payoff and there's a learning curve, but that's a huge payoff is that when you can have someone that comes in your practice and they're having a pleasant patient experience, you're not having to take their wires out. You're not having to fix their broken bracket. You're just giving them a box of aligners and saying, I'll see you in three months. I think that's a fantastic place to end. And I think that's the experience that we're all hoping for and kind of shooting for, for our, our patients. So let's uh, wrap up with our uh, Express 8 questions here and uh, we'll do these quickly and uh, and then call it a night. Does that sound okay? That sounds amazing. Thank you, Lance. Good. All right, Maz. So what's your go-to treatment for full step class twos? With Invisalign? In general. In general. So uh, it, it would have to be surgery if it was an adult, you know, in terms of, I always say go-to, that's always a recommendation, but I would say with braces, I'm actually finding that very challenging to treat in terms of trying to get a full correction. So probably I would opt for an upper by extraction uh, if I felt like the patient's profile could handle it. If it's an Invisalign, though, I would attempt uh, probably carry a distalizer to do that just because I'm more comfortable with mechanics. Uh, upper by extractions are still, I wouldn't say a little bit challenging, but I'm, I just feel like it's more predictable to do with a carrier. Cool. What's your standard retention protocol? Uh, standard retention. So I'm finding more and more, I'm really starting to love the Vivera retainers and uh, 
a couple of reasons why. One, it's I think it's a, it's a very durable retainer. I can't reproduce that type of SX retainer in my lab. Uh, and that's really for all Invisalign patients. And I'm even starting to do a lot of pre-debon uh, retainers, Vivera's for my patients, because traditionally I've always used a Holly retainer, uh, upper and lower. And I've had teeth slip out of Hollies, you know, and I, I feel like I've had much better long-term retention in terms of seeing my patients stability-wise when they have a really full coverage of their uh, teeth in plastic. Now, of course, you know, you would prefer to have an occlusion that's fully socked in before doing that. If it's not a fully socked in occlusion, I'll still go to a Holly all the time. Yeah, great. Who are your role models or your mentors? So I definitely my father and uh, Dan German, but from a teaching perspective, uh, I, I significantly admire uh, the late Vince Kokic. Uh, he really had a big impact on me on in terms of high practice. Uh, what I know. And I just thought he was uh, such a huge, a huge boon for the profession in terms of what he offered for uh, knowledge. And he was gone way too early, way too early. Absolutely. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument? My favorite orthodontic product uh, is probably, uh, I, well, I think it's obvious, I guess, Invisalign. Uh, and my instrument, uh, I'm not sure if I'm if this you would consider as an instrument, but I think ClinCheck, uh, I, just being able to true implant digitally. I, I don't offer digital braces and insignia or sure smile. So I, I feel like that makes me a much better diagnostician in terms of looking at two sides of discrepancy and seeing things in 3D much better, just kind of seeing the end in the beginning. You know, I think that's an amazing instrument to have uh, to be able to use. So I, I would say Invisalign and ClinCheck. Cool. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Ooh, uh, best vacation I've ever taken was my honeymoon with my wife. And we went to uh, Santorini, Greece, and we went to Ia. And then we flew over to Italy and went to uh, Tuscany and in the Florence area and then Lake Como. And, wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was a two week, uh, vacation, which I don't know if I'll ever be able to do in my life again until I'm 60, <laughs> uh, but it was, it was absolutely incredible and amazing. And, uh, I highly recommend, uh, that the Tuscany Florence area was probably my favorite part. Uh, just the history of Florence being right there and just the art is in the streets. It's incredible. We took a walking tour and then Tuscany just going to the wineries and having amazing wine and food. And uh, the the geography there is just breathtaking. Yeah, yeah. What's one great book that you've read recently? A great book I've read recently. Um, I would say the most recent book I read was probably Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I know it's kind of an older book, but uh, it's one that came across my lab recently. And I thought that was just fascinating reading about how, uh, kind of what it takes. And some of it being fortuitous, some of it being, of course, uh, how much work you put in to be successful in life. It was really interesting to me. Cool. For your fixed cases, what bracket system are you currently using? Uh, we use a smart clip variable torque bracket, a one eight slot. I think we're probably the only people in the country to use that. I'll be honest with you. We've, we, we visited Noob Sandy several times and if and anyone has been to his practice, it's absolutely phenomenal and amazing. And I don't, unfortunately, I don't think he offers his in-office course anymore, but he was all about efficiency. And that's kind of what we were aiming for with that system. Uh, I will tell you, I'm probably a little bit disenchanted with the bracket. I would love to move to a different self-flagging bracket, but I haven't found one that offers 
that variable torque prescription I'm looking for that 3M has with that smart clip because that really for certain cases, especially class three cases we found with fixed, if we're going to use that, uh, really is a slam dunk just being able to express that torque early on. Cool. And what's one area of orthodontics you want to learn more about in 2018? I really, really want to learn more about TMD. I know that sounds kind of odd, uh, being that we're niched out for in my practice and so forth, but I think I've been leaning on my father too much for it. Uh, and I'm comfortable doing the exams for it, but I know I still have a long way to go. Uh, I did listen to the Ocus and lecture that you had here recently, and he was in Lexington, Kentucky. He's, he's just phenomenal. But, um, you know, my dad, he, he's there now. He's, he's young. He's healthy. But one day he may not be practicing anymore, and that's something that I need to take ownership of in the practice. So I definitely want to go all in and learn as much as I can about TMD. Great. Well, Mods, this has been fantastic. Thank you again so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this. I just There's just so much good information here. I can't wait to go back uh, and listen to it. If people want to contact you or find out more about the Aligner Intensive Fellowship, what's the best way to do that? The email to contact for more information is alignerfellowship at gmail.com. Or if anyone has any questions for me personally, they're welcome to email me at moshiri which is M-O-S-H-I-R-I, Maz, M-A-Z, at gmail.com. So alignerfellowship at gmail.com and Maz at gmail.com. Great, great. Well, again, Maz, thank you so much. My pleasure, Lance. Thank you for having me. It was really, it was was an honor and a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Well, have a good night. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Lance. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 